Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today as we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere it needs to be in the U.S. Uh, one of the more common critiques or complaints, depending on how you look at it, uh, regarding broadband, uh, when we have discussions about broadband's impact on economic development, uh, folks cite the lack of data, lack of uh, sufficient empirical data that draws a clear line between uh, community having broadband and what are the economic impacts of that uh, technology. And so today, I am extremely happy to uh, to talk, be able to talk about the Minnesota Rural Intelligent Communities uh, Project, uh, which uh, is going to give us some valuable uh, information. Uh, it's a research project conducted in uh, Minnesota uh, of, an, of 11 communities that looks at the um, at a number of issues related to economic uh, development, economic advancement, and how broadband technology, high-speed Internet, plays a role in that. And... Um, They've been at this for a couple of years, so this was not just a you know a quick look and see. This was a fairly detailed uh, exercise. And so joining us today are um, Bernadine Jocelyn, who is the director of public policy and engagement for the Blandon Foundation, which I'll have her explain uh, what that's all about, if you don't know. And then Robert Bell, who is the co-founder of the Intelligent Communities Forum. And both these folks have joined us today to present uh, some of the key findings from this report and discuss what these findings mean for uh, rural communities, not only in Minnesota, but also uh, across the U.S. Both of you, thank you very much for being uh, our guest today. Thank you, Craig. My pleasure. All right. So let's start with um, uh, each of you explaining uh, your role in the project. I understand you have different roles as organizations, uh, the Blandon Foundation and uh, uh, ICF, Intelligent Communities Forum, and then we can go into uh you know what were the the findings and what they what they mean we'll we'll start with um you Bernadine what was the Blandon Foundation's role and then I'll talk to we'll we'll bring Robert in Well thank you Craig it's wonderful to be here with you today Blandon Foundation is Minnesota's largest rural based philanthropy and our mission is to strengthen rural Minnesota communities we're all about helping um, resource community leaders to have the connections and skills and um, um, concepts that they need to improve the economic vitality and the well-being and quality of life in their communities. And because we care about rural economies, we've been working since 2003 in helping communities get the tools and knowledge that they need to put broadband to work as a tool for economic development. We see um, a lot of evidence through our work that by bringing um, uh, a focus on adoption of high-speed Internet, that communities can use that as a real powerful tool to strengthen their economies and to expand opportunity for all residents. So mm -hmm. our role, um, given that mission, was to, um, on behalf of Minnesota's rural communities that we serve, to seek out and receive federal funding that came through the stimulus grant 
Um, and we worked in partnership with Intelligent Community Forum and others to bring resources uh, to bear in rural communities and help support their leaders in focusing on adopting broadband as an important engine for economic and community development. Gotcha. And so, so you're primarily focused on uh, Minnesota. That's your, your your primary or only domain, right, as far as communities? That's right. Rural communities okay. in Minnesota. Yep. Excellent. Now, Robert, what's what's your what was uh, IICF's role? Well, we were very honored to be invited into this project. Um, what what ben, uh, the Blandon Foundation did was fairly remarkable. They looked at a lot of different methods or ways of thinking about this issue of broadband adoption and how you turn it into economic and social value, and they adopted the framework that we. We introduced originally about 10 years ago, having to do with, with a, it gives you a multifaceted look at the impacts of broadband as they, as they flow through the life of a city, a town, a county, a region. Uh, and so, of course, that was, it was wonderful to have somebody look at this and think this is important enough to, uh, to use it for this, this kind of project. Beyond that, we were also invited to develop metrics that were going to enable the project to say, okay, well, we're going to start at one end, and at the other end we want to see if anything changed. Did we, did we accomplish something with the resources that were put to bear? And so we worked very closely with, uh, with the foundation to take our global set of metrics, which we use for our international award program that's been running for about a decade as well, uh, and to recalibrate them, if you will, to the scale uh, of what you find in these communities, which range from small cities of 15, 20, 30,000 down to counties with you know, 5,000 people in them. Uh, and the other thing that we worked to do was to come up with things that could be measured which were readily available. Um, in, our in our normal process, communities have to do a lot of work to come up with the, the data that we we measure, and what we wanted to do was to find things that that were good proxies of of the uh, from broadband to what we call to innovation to what we call knowledge work um, within the community, publicly available data that we could then put into our model and come out and say, here's where you are right now, and in the future, let's look at where you are then and see if there's been a difference. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now we're going to come back to. Um you know, talking about, you know, the methodologies and what are some good practices for doing effective research. But I do want to lead off in uh, in, in talking and talk about uh, what were uh, what were the objectives. In other words, what specific things were you trying to find out in these communities, and what are some of the uh, the, the the key findings after your your process was? I was it was two years, right? Yes, research. Okay, it was, so, it was um, actually it was a three-year project, Craig. And and I'd be you know I'm glad to. That's a great question, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. Really, at its heart, um, our Minnesota Intelligent Rural Community Project was about creating what we came to call a culture of use, a culture of use that enabled and encouraged citizens and business owners and entrepreneurs, students, everybody in the community. Um, to uh, use broadband-enabled technology to make their dreams for a more prosperous and inclusive future come true. 
And mm-hmm. that culture of use um, idea was really about changing behavior and um, understanding about the role of broadband as a critical infrastructure. I like to talk about it as indispensable infrastructure for the 21st century. But specifically, our target outcomes for the Minnesota Intelligent Rural Community Project, our Merck project, were to increase the use of broadband services. We also wanted to increase the efficiency and effectiveness of digital literacy training in the state. And overall, our, you know, our overall goal was to increase the economic vitality of the rural communities that we served. So that was really what we set out to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so now what were the, I would say, let's start with the top two findings of the, of the research. What, what did you uncover during this exercise? Um, well, I think um, one of the main uh, takeaway lessons that, um, looking back on the project that I would carry forward, is the importance of cross-sector engagement and understanding that broadband infrastructure is a means to the end of a lot of factors that influence community well-being and economic um, vitality. And so that it's it's very, I think part, a lot of the success that we saw in the, in the uh, results was because we brought people together from education, healthcare, um, the business sector, uh, local government and students to um, think together about and dream together about what their goals were um, and then to um, give them the data. And this is where we're partnering with um, Intelligent Community Forums was so important and helpful to help them benchmark or baseline rather where they were at the beginning of the project in terms of utilization and access and then set their goals come up with specific interventions or projects to um, address those goals, and then at the end, with the help of Robert and his team, measure against these indicators that uh, Robert talked about to see what, pro- what progress they had, they had made in each of, the, each of the five pillars of Intelligent Community Forum um, okay. approach to economic development. Well, and, and what Bernadine said there is really important. Um, and one of the reasons I found that the design of the project uh, by Blandon to be so impressive because it started out with t- asking community groups to come up with ideas for things they could do with a small amount of funding to improve the community using you know these information and communications technology tools, broadband and computers. And so there were a lot of proposals put before these working groups within 11 different communities. And those working groups decided, with some good guidance from some of the Blandon team, you know, where to place their bets and how to unleash some local creativity and local energy within this framework that says these are the kinds of projects you should be working on. You know, there's things that are inbounds and things that maybe are not going to have any impact. And Mm -hmm. now, then, go. It's your responsibility. You and the community own it. And... That produced the energy that I think made all the difference in this in this, uh, this program. It was a it was a sort of a research effort and a community development effort all at the same time. Ah, Craig, if I could just ta- Craig, could I just just mm-hmm. add on to dot the I and what Robert said is that I think uh, another key message for your listeners out there too is this understanding that local leadership 
really matters. And that um, we like to say at Blind and Foundation, you have to do it yourself, but you can't do it alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and helping helping local leaders understand that concerted collaborative efforts around goals that are shared and embraced across the community can make a discernible difference in the community's economic well-being. So it's really a message of hope and um, a call to action that communities need to depend on themselves in the first instance, and when they come together around shared goals, they can make an important impact through local leadership on the overall quality of life and economic well-being of their communities. Mm-hmm. hmm Now, was it difficult to structure this in such a way that you were um, gathering data and also motivating, you know, your key stakeholder leadership um, or was that a fairly easy thing to do? Because this, this is somewhat unusual. I think when we look at most research that's been done, it's been sort of the traditional, you ask a bunch of people a lot of questions or you get them on the phone for extensive interviews, but it seems like you were doing sort of a, a two-track process. Um, was it? I mean, was it difficult? Um, it came down to the design, right? So, and Bernadine, you know, please correct me if I'm getting getting off the track here, but... You know, we specifically designed what we were going to measure so that they were things that were, you know, relatively easily measurable. The, probably the hardest one to measure was broadband penetration. That actually took a survey, which was done by the uh, University of Minnesota. But otherwise, it was things like what's the average uh, age of the businesses, what's the average you know, size of, of businesses in the community uh, in terms of employees, uh, how available is uh, investment capital from public or private sources, sets of things that are relatively easy to measure so that it could capture the individual and and focused efforts of the communities to improve their life, their, their lot in life, and at the same time give us the data that we were looking for. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Robert. I guess I would add that I think what made the metrics so helpful um, and important to communities what the, is that they were tools to help communities measure themselves against goals that they themselves had set. And this was really key from our perspective. Um, the, articu- the, the, we, uh, the foundation provided facilitation and staff support to uh, community leadership teams that were uh, consisted of um, champions and um, advocates and people from across the you know breadth of the community. So you had healthcare represented, education, government, business, all together, and they collectively um, looked at what were their goals for um, technology adoption and and telecommunications infrastructure for their community. And then we were able to use the metrics that ICF brought to the table to um, inform the activities that the communities designed to achieve those goals. So it wasn't just a set of metrics out there, you know, to report back to your Gigabit Nation audience or others that were interested, but really used as um, ways to help the community itself see where it was, where it was, where it wanted to go, and how they were going to get there. Mm-hmm. And I had a I had a um, I had a quiet 
well, I guess it was a moment where I could go out, out of the meeting afterwards and dance up and down out of happiness. Um, when we, we did all this work to develop the metrics, obviously we consulted with the communities. We said, this is what we're going to measure, and these are the, the, the ranges we're going to measure on. We went mm -hmm. out, gathered the data, presented the data, and finally sat down with the representatives of these 11 communities, and I asked the, I asked the fateful question. I said, tell me if, in your view, just instinctively, does this represent well where you are today, this set of numbers that, you know, I put together? And so I, then I waited, and I waited, and they all looked at me and said, yeah, you, you, you got it. You, you, you just about captured where we are right now, and I was just, you know, I was over the moon because statistics, we all know what Mark Twain wrote about statistics. Um, mm, yes. <laughs> you do your best with them, but they're not necessarily a representation of reality, and apparently, you know, working together, we got pretty close. Mm-hmm. So you know, Craig, you gave us the opportunity to um, talk about what we actually accomplished, and let's share that with your listeners. I kind of blew by that, and so they have a better sense about what it was that we actually achieved on the ground. Yeah. Um, I can just uh, share a little bit of that information with your listeners. So um, one of our goals through the um, stimulus project was to increase the overall number of subscriptions, you know, people that were subscribed to broadband. And we said as our goal um, that we were going to increase the uh, subscription rate in rural Minnesota communities 2% above the statistically anticipated growth, because we all understand that you know subscription rates are growing on, uh, in and of themselves anyway, and we wanted to be able to show um, an effort above and beyond that statistically anticipated growth level. So mm -hmm. our um, our goal was an increase of 38,000 um, new subscribers in rural Minnesota, and that would have been a 2% above the statistically anticipated growth. But we exceeded that um, considerably. Our overall, according to the metrics that we used, um, subscription uh, increase was 56,663. So um, we, we were able to document um, an increase in subscriptions. We also implemented 60 new public access computer sites across the state of Minnesota. Over um, 2,000 computers were refitted, licensed, and distributed to qualifying first-time computer owners across the state. So 2,000 computers are now in the homes and hands of families that had never before been computer owners. And, of course, we all understand that if you don't have a computer, you can't be subscribed to the Internet. Mm -hmm. um, we trained um, over 8,000, over uh, well over 8,000 small businesses in um, utilizing uh, broadband technology to increase their um, business marketing and um, connections to uh, uh, the markets out there. And then over 9,000 people across the state participated in at least 16 hours of training. So there was a, a really broad, and then over a quarter of a million people, 250,000 Minnesotans, were reached through outreach and awareness. So all of these partners that we brought together really ended up having a large imprint um, of awareness and understanding about the role of broadband in economic vitality, such that um, we understand that uh, rural Minnesota is now leading the nation in rural adoption. So we're we're very pleased with the outcome of all of our partners' efforts. Mm -hmm. Now, did this um, did this effort 
uncover some, I don't know, specific economic development outcomes, or was that less of a concern than putting the technology in place to be able to affect uh, economic outcomes? Well, that's a t you know, that's a hard one. Let's, let's remember the period of time that we're talking about here. Um, Bernadette said three years, and by all means, that was correct. We were involved for two. The period of measurement was about 18 months. And so in that period of time, what, you know, what can be accomplished? The kind of things that, that um, Bernadine just referred to are all precursors for seizing economic value. So it's issues mm -hmm. of how do we deal with, how do we get broadband adoption up? How do we um, reach people with the message about the fact that it is important and why it's important? How do we... Uh, make sure that we're not going to be excluding people who are otherwise going to be left behind by this. Um, when you get to the hard stuff like, you know, unemployment rate and the average age of businesses and the extent to which you're able to get a, a startup culture going, we all know it takes longer than 18 months. Mm -hmm. um, so part of the goal here was to set out by saying how ready are these places to take economic advantage of this new digital asset as it as it's deployed, and then, you know, what did they do to improve their readiness for it? Um, mm -hmm. If you came back in a few years, you could then begin to look at that broader issue of what's been the net economic impact. Mm -hmm. So if I'm if I'm understanding this correctly, what you've done is you've um, you, you've set the stage by developing criteria by which folks at a later point can measure uh, the actual economic advancement. And what you have measured with, in terms of these, um, you know, numbers of training sessions and adoptions and so forth is how well you can move people into um, situations in which they're ready to have the technology impact economic development. Yeah, and this, is, and this comes out of our study of, well, at this point, about 120 um, cities and regions around the world, and just you know, again, seeing the patterns. How do these things go? And there's a certain number of precursors, a certain number of, of, of conditions you have to put in place for the uh, for the community to seize the opportunities in front of it. And, and you know, that's what we were measuring. I think I got that about right, uh, Bernadine. Yeah, and you know, I would I would add too, um, Craig, that uh, from the Blandon Foundation's perspective, an important goal for us was to reduce the digital divide and, uh, and increase the access that um, historically underserved or marginalized populations have to the Internet. I think, you know, we're, this program today is focusing a lot on economic development and the role of broadband, but I think we all recognize that um, in today's economy that if you're not connected to the Internet, it's hard to fully participate in American life. Um, I like to, we like to say that access denied is opportunity denied. Even to get a job today at McDonald's, you have to be able, you know, their, your other fast food chains, you know, their application processes are all online. And so um, knowing that as a result of this community-driven effort, there are many more families in Minnesota that now have access to the Internet in their home um, is itself an important outcome because there are no throwaway workers. Everybody counts, and we need, we're need we very committed at Blandon Foundation to ensure that the benefits 
of the new Internet economy are widely shared. Mm-hmm. Now, what kind of, um, <clears throat> what can I say, what is the level of acceptance that broadband is important to economic development? And I ask this question from the perspective that a lot of folks, well, I'm not sure a lot, of, a, a number of people and a number of communities are reluctant to make the investment in broadband because they're not convinced yet. It, you know, it's, it's well, yeah, maybe this is valuable, but we have these other problems. We have these other issues. We have so little money. Um, we're, as you went through this exercise with those 11 communities, uh, how, how was, I guess, the adoption of the idea that, yes, this is going to have an economic impact? You know, yeah, thank you, Craig, for that. Um, you're absolutely right that, um, you know, if you ask community leaders uh, or communities, citizens, what their concerns are, and we've actually done this here at Blanard Foundation with a, a poll of rural residents that we call Rural Pulse, and we asked them, you know, what what's on their mind, what are the, the issues or concerns that are at the top of uh, of their mind, um, and it's, you know, wouldn't surprise any of us. It's it's uh, job creation and retention, healthcare and education, and broadband, of course, is a very important engine for all of those things. And so, I think one of the lessons that we've learned in um, our work is that um, broadband is uh, is is an important um, means to the uh, means to the end of achieving those goals. Um, I like to quote the economic development director from Benton County, a small county in central Minnesota, Nancy Hoffman, and she uh, reminded us or told us that her elected officials see the importance of broadband for economic development and community vitality um, in a new way because it's seen as a means to an end. So rather than talking about broadband as an end in itself, broadband is really a means to um, economic development and community vitality, and framing it that way has made a big difference for our ability to engage local leaders in this challenge. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting topic. We're we're really having a, a public debate at the moment in our country, and I'm very happy that we're having it finally uh, about what what this stuff is. What is broadband? You know, if if I think it was the Robert Adkinson of the Innovation and Information Technology Foundation once wrote that if this is really just about you know having some cool games on your iPad, your iPod, or your iPhone, or your iPad, this is obvious. This is not an issue of national importance. But if we we say that broadband is infrastructure, uh, we all at the community level know what that means. We know the value of a road. We know the value of being connected to a highway network, of being connected to a rail network, of having a, an airport near us. Um, that everybody gets that. We know that bridges have to be there. Well, this is the next infrastructure, and I think what, what Nancy, who's got a good way with words, was talking about was exactly that. Now her, her community leaders look at this and say, this is infrastructure for growth, and we know how that works. We know what that looks like. We know that it requires investment up front, and we know that it delivers enormous value over the long term to our community. And when you frame it that way, we have found that, that most of the discussion goes away because if it's just to uh, if it's just so I can get to my Facebook page faster, you know, who sh- why should I care? 
Mm-hmm. But if it's that I need to apply for a job at McDonald's, as Bernadine said, I can care a lot. Mm-hmm. Does the um, did the did the research did the project itself um, identify or will it identify over the next couple of years the necessary resources <clears throat> that are going to be important if you uh, want to achieve economic development? And this question comes from my perspective that um, you can put the technology in place. But there is also a need for programs to support the technology, and they will obviously cost money or resources of one sort or another. So communities should not be blind to the fact that there is a direct technology investment, but there's also a direct or indirect uh, programs development cost. So I'm going to hit a softball to Robert here. Um, <laughs> this <laughs> is part of what the the real um, uh, beauty and um, elegance of our partnership with Intelligent Community Framework is that, that framework, and maybe Robert can speak a little bit more to it, ta- encourages and brings to uh, community leaders um, a, a framework or a mind map to help them understand that broadband is indispensable infrastructure, but it's part of a community ecosystem of efforts. And um, Robert, maybe you could uh, review the five pillars that go together that um, help all of intel- uh, community leaders understand that it can't be a, it has to be a holistic approach that embraces a whole range of interventions across the community. Well, thank you, and I will do that. But even before I do that, I want to I want to jump on on the great point you raised, Craig. I mean, yeah, people say there's going to be all these programs, and it's all going to cost us all this money. And the answer is, well, not really. You build a road, and it's going to cost you money to put in sewers and lights. Sure. And what's going to happen? Why are you putting in those sewers and those lights? Well, you're putting them in because um, businesses are going to open up along that road, and those businesses are going to become ratepayers and taxpayers. And what you get out of that is economic development. So have you con- had to continue to invest a bit in what you're doing? Sure. But it's just like all the other investments you make in your community. Um, mm-hmm. One of my favorite stories from our work is about a, a city called Riverside, California, about 60 miles outside of Los Angeles. They put a lot of money and, and effort into building out this infrastructure. And then started doing the most amazingly creative things with it. One of my favorite stories for them is... They had a graffiti problem. They're close enough to Los Angeles to have gangs. Mm-hmm. So they wrote they wrote themselves an, an app that lets you take your smartphone, shoot a picture of the graffiti, and send it. It goes into their it goes into their central system, which matches it against other photographs that have been taken. At this point, they've got thousands and thousands of them, and can usually t- identify who painted that particular piece of graffiti because mm-hmm. they've caught the guy before. And the system identifies that, it dispatches a work crew, it, it sends a, begins to prepare a file for the city attorney's office, and the city attorney has prosecutes those things, and they've recovered $200,000 in, in funds to pay for the remediation of the graffiti. So, you know, hmm. right within the resource, you find that there are ways that you can make these things pay as you go. Right. You can't do it until you have the asset in place. Mm-hmm. Um, to come back to, to Bernadine's point, yeah, what we, we look at, you know, technology is one of five things we look at, and all the rest have nothing to do with technology. One of them is the ability of your uh, community to cr- 
to train its workforce so that it can do knowledge work. So we're not just lifting boxes because it's really, or flipping burgers because you can't make a living wage with that anymore. So we need the people in our community to have the skills ne necessary to get better jobs. We also need to bring into our community either uh, indirectly through some of the, through, through broadband connectivity, you can work out, out of your home, or by having by attracting entrepreneurs to our community, or growing the entrepreneurs we have to make more innovative businesses and to make our government more innovative and to make this a place where I don't care if it's a city of 5,000 or a city of 5 million, it's a tremendously great place to live, it's a great place to work, it's a great place to raise your family, it's a great place to grow. And if you do all of those things using this amazing broadband asset, then you get this virtuous cycle moving forward. At the same time, really smart communities um, work very hard on this issue of digital exclusion or preventing it, creating digital inclusion, because the more successful you're going to be at creating this broadband future, this broadband economy for your community, the more likely you're going to be to marginalize people. And we don't want to do that. There are no, there are no unnecessary people in our community. Uh, and in many cases, there's no unnecessary labor in our community. Uh, and lastly, and this is, again, why I, I think the Blandon Project was so well-conceived, we believe very strongly in what we call advocacy, which is if the people in your city, town, or region understand why you want to go in a particular direction, why you want to change the old ways of doing things, they, they need to believe it. And if they don't believe it, you're not going anywhere. You can make all the speeches you want, but ultimately the citizens and the businesses and the institutions in your place have to be your strongest advocates for change. And that's what you, you know, saw taking shape there. That was one of the great takeaways to me of this project, um, that they set out very consciously to create that group of advocates. And then those advocates, of course, got charged up and started seeing the opportunities for the place they lived. So that's quite a broad range of things to be looking at, um, but we find that you need to be working on all of them to get success, whether, again, you're a very large place or a very small place. Mm -hmm. Now, um, one thing that... Uh, while while you folks were doing this particular project, um, which is uh, establishing, I mean, it's gathering information on the short term, but it's also setting yourself up to be able to measure down the road, I don't know, three, four years, uh, how far you've come, how far you've advanced down this, this path, and, and subsequently be able to tie more um, you know, I guess to connect more dots between economic development and broadband. Now, Chattanooga is, um, I guess, about a year ago, I think, when I spoke to them, they were uh, setting a process up so that they, over the course of three or four years, could start measuring and gathering information. Uh, I, I think the initial part will be uh, the the correlation between using broadband to improve your smart grid and then that smart grid's improvement, what is that impact on economic development? Because that was an assumption of theirs going in before this whole gigabit thing and, and broadband to the community as just Internet access. It was about um, uh, improving their smart grid. And they said, you know, when they were starting, you know, there was no data available. They were kind of making it up as they as they went along. And now they're putting procedures in place with like a five, call it three to five year payback as far as gathering the information. Um, 
is it safe to say that um, measurements for broadband's impact and economic development are really going to be something along the lines of a four, five, or six-year process of data gathering before we have what I would call empirical data versus, you know, anecdotal and, you know, well, I can see the logic even if I don't see the numbers. Is, is that the kind of time frame you think is, is um, necessary to get really good information? I would say so, definitely. I mean, the thing you just described in Chattanooga, and I, those guys are just fantastic, some of the things they're doing, is very clever because they are taking a very established methodology, which is to measure the impact of an electric utility on the economy of its region. I mean, we've been mm -hmm. doing that for a long time, so it's, we've worked out how to... How, we've worked out a methodology that people accept. And so now they're saying, well, if we use this this uh, fantastic network we came up with to make that network more efficient, that, that produces an output that I can now measure. I can put it into that model. And the whole genesis of the project there actually had nothing to do with communications. It was the utility saying, if we do this and we do this properly, we think we can we can you know drop twenty percent out of our generating capacity over time and have a yet have a more robust and more flexible and better you know power network. The, the telecom ended up just being sort of icing on the cake for them, mm -hmm. um, and so yeah, it, it takes a lot of time. This is a very difficult thing to measure right now. The, the numbers that people quote for broadband and economic development are pretty much all drawn from state-level, provincial-level, or national-level studies. So you'll see things about the UN estimating that for every 10% increase in in broadband penetration, you get a, I can't remember what it is, 0.5% increase in GDP. Mm -hmm. And there's been state studies that, that show a similar impact, I think it's a you 3% know, impact in state gross domestic product. And what they're doing is taking very large-scale numbers and applying a lot of statistical analysis to them. Um, and we accept them because, as you say, it echoes what we see. We know in our own lives the difference between being connected and not being connected. Um, and I couldn't earn my living if I wasn't as connected as I am. Uh, so it's a very, very hard thing to measure for the simple reason that how do you separate out that thing from all the other impacts going on in the community at the same time? Mm -hmm. The natural experiment is not there. Mm -hmm. So if I keep following this train, then the advice, if you know, a community were to ask me, I would say that um, you identify certain things that are obvious and seem to make sense, but we're not going to really be able to have you know empirical numbers to make a you know a an uptight accountant feel all justified about doing this project that there's a still going to be for the next year or two or maybe three, you know, some level of faith and some level of reliance on, you know, anecdotal stuff that touches me, the stakeholder, and that's going to be my justification for moving this project forward. Well, that and common sense. I mean, that and common sense, right? If mm -hmm. you build a road, does it improve your economy? Well, it depends if anybody drives on it. It depends upon where <laughs> it's going. It depends upon what kind of condition it's in. And one of the things that we that we believe very passionately at the forum, and we think our data validates it, is it's not the broadband that's important. That's just an asset. Mm -hmm. It's how the community mobilizes to turn it into economic 
benefit, how it mobilizes to turn it into social benefit. Right. How it, how it mobilizes to turn it into something that actually enriches and reinforces local culture rather than diluting it and making your community just another place. Mm-hmm. Um, those take human action. Those take interaction. And the idea that we're still sort of arguing about whether we should have broadband or not is is fundamentally pretty silly. We all know <laughs> that we would like to have it. The only question is exactly who's going to pay for it and how. And right. That's the discussion we can talk about. But we all know we we all know we'd like to have it, right? I don't mm-hmm. think there's anybody uh, who wouldn't at least go, yeah, sure. Even if I don't understand it, my granddaughter just can't live without it. Yeah. Craig, if I, I would like to add that, you know, when you talk and other people talk to communities uh, around the nation about, you know, what are the benefits of wading into this um, challenge of helping ensure, um, a, you know, technologically literate and culture of use uh, in our communities, um, I would, a message that I would bring to them is that it, it, can and does make a difference at the community level. I know you're you're trying to maybe roll it up and look, you know, across large data sets and and large communities. But at the community level, I mean, we're we have heard from our participants that it has made an important difference in their ability to work together to achieve community goals, and that infrast and that that broadband infrastructure can um, help communities uh provide an improved quality of life and economic vitality to their to their to their citizens. Um we we're you know a couple of our partners have said that working through this intelligent community framework that includes that encourages economic development professionals and others to look holistically at their economy that they've developed new community connections across sectors that have allowed them to have new conversations that they've never had before. So I think that just the, um, the the framework that ICF brings to thinking about this as an indispensable infrastructure for job creation, for economic attainment, for youth retention, um, and for improving the efficiency and effectiveness of government services really helps... Um, engage local leaders in this work because you're not talking about broadband um you know not um in isolation but rather seeing it as the means to the end of community vitality. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's a particular I mean this this project for us was profoundly important because it kicked off a much larger um set of ideas and a much larger project. We we've started something that we're calling the rural imperative. Um, which you can find by just Googling rural imperative. But mm-hmm. what it, we're focusing on at this point is the fact that, that everybody's telling us that the cities are the be-all and the end-all of the world um, from what the U.N. said that the beginning, halfway through the 20th century, there 71% of the world's population lived in rural areas. By 2010, it was down to 49%. And the U.N. is telling us that by 2050, 70% of us are going to all live in megacities. And that sounds kind of interesting, maybe. I don't think I want to live in one of those personally. Uh, but what we're concerned about is this: the other side. What about the rural areas of the world? Um, they need to be economically sustainable. They need to be culturally sustainable because that's where our food comes from. That's where our oxygen comes from. That's where our water comes from. We, we as a people need these areas, and the people living in them have a perfect right to stay there. So that's really the area where we think that, that – 
broadband and information technology can make a profound difference. Uh, we don't really know how it all works yet. We don't know how the economic models work. But you know, what are the problems of rural areas? The problem is one of scale. There aren't as many people in, in the same square mile or square meter, square kilometer. Well, broadband crosses that, right? Um, there's not as much density, so people who have two people with the same idea about starting a great business don't bump into each other. Well, again, these communications technologies can, in theory, bridge all of that. So we're looking actively for more and more models of places like the ones we studied in Minnesota, like Mitchell, South Dakota, um, like Bristol, Virginia, that have said, we, we're not going to have the debate about whether we need this stuff. We know we need it. We're going to put it into place. And then we're going to work on turning that in, into making this an amazing place to live, to work, to raise families. Mm -hmm. and the stories are quite impressive. So definitely a uh, an act of faith. Let me ask both of you a question um, uh, somewhat on, on a different topic. We all see, or I guess it's easier for people to grasp the correlation between broadband and the impact on businesses, you know, attracting businesses, because clearly cities are proving that out, that, you know, once they have it, they can attract business or at least be on list to be considered by companies, say, for expansion and relocating, et cetera. I think that we more or less accept the fact that if we use broadband, you know, high-speed Internet to improve education and access to data, by students, you know, kids who are students and adults who are students, that ultimately that has an economic impact because it makes the the worker or the potential worker a better professional or a better worker. Um, we haven't talked a lot, or I haven't seen a lot of discussions about healthcare delivery. So broadband's improving of healthcare delivery. How does that have a an economic development outcome? And I'd like to get both of your opinions on that particular question. You know, is there a correlation between, you know, telemedicine and improving healthcare delivery and the economic vitality of a community? And uh, Bernadine, I'll let you start first. Yeah, thank you, Craig. Um, we have seen um, a large proportion of the community developed and implemented projects focused on healthcare delivery. Um, and I can give some specific examples of, of that where, um, for example, if you have a, um, uh, a home for developmentally disabled um, young adults and um, th through uh, broadband-enhanced uh, monitoring technology, um, family members are, and other concerned caregivers are able to stay in touch with those residents more effectively and at lower costs. Um, we've uh, also used um, our funds and our um, resources here to support telepharmacy where uh, there's a small community, for example, that I drive through regularly on my way to my cabin in Minnesota and they have lost their downtown pharmacy. And it's an aging community. Many of the communities in north central Minnesota are seeing demographic shifts towards, you know, more um, higher proportion of elderly people. And it's a real hardship on those uh, residents of small places if they don't have a pharmacy available. Well, using broadband-enhanced and broadband-enabled um, video uh, connections, um, that little town of Longville, Minnesota, was able to reopen 
a local pharmacy facility that will now um, make those services available to, to their residents. Um, another example is um, the use of um, x-rays and being able to deliver x-ray images over, over broadband connections to get um, you know, more expert review of, um, of the results of the x-ray and then um, inform uh, caregiving decisions made at, at um, hospitals that may not have that expertise. So actually, in, in my experience, along with education, the healthcare sector is one where it's really easy to demonstrate um, quite um, specific economic uh, benefits and savings um, for uh, patients than um, uh, in healthcare facilities that are absent those technologies. Yeah, and in, the, in addition to the okay. savings, because the cost-effectiveness stuff is easy to is easy to track. I was in um, in Columbus, Ohio, and they were talking about a um, remote health, uh, psychiatric health care system they use reaching into um, regions in, in part of Appalachia. And, you know, what they were finding was that basically instead of having their tra highly trained nurses spending hours and hours and hours on the roads trying to get to patients, if they used telehealth systems with them, they saw more people, they could spend more quality time with those people over the remote link, and those people felt as though there was always somebody there because, of course, that the, the terminal equipment didn't go away. It was there in their house, and if they needed something, they could they could access help. So, uh, and so lower cost, better outcomes, better quality of care. The, my fa one of my favorite examples actually is in a little city of thirty thousand in, in Ontario called Stratford. It's at the center of a of a um, the richest agricultural region actually in Ontario. Uh, actually, it was which is the richest in, in no, it's in Ontario. They have. They are at the center of a, of a uh, county healthcare network, and the Stratford General Hospital ends up because they have a very robust broadband connectivity to pretty much every private practitioner uh, and remote clinic out throughout the county. They read all. Their radiology department consists of four people who read X-rays for the entire county, and when it's when it's nighttime in Stratford, they're being read by somebody in a different time zone. Um, they process all of the farm, all of the clinical testing gets run through a centralized facility, but with the information reported right away to doctors over the network. So they get tremendous cost savings, and they're able to deliver health care in places that they never could. And the, the underlying huge benefit they get from that is that they can attract really good quality medical staff. Mm -hmm. They're offering them the best. One of the problems that, again, you get in low-density areas is how do you attract good quality or any, for that matter, physicians, um, practical nurses, RNs. It's, very, it's a tough life. They're not necessarily getting compensated well enough. By centralizing the talent and using it to serve a dispersed population using these technologies, they're really getting the best of both worlds. Interesting, interesting. Now, let's, um, uh, before we run out of time, uh, I want to get from, from Robert kind of a worldview. What are maybe two things that you saw in the, you know, the activity in, in Minnesota that's similar to what's, you know, what's being found to be the case in other countries? 
and what's different in terms of broadband's impact and economic development. So I, so I guess to sum it up, did you see things in, in Minnesota that were similar to what you're seeing in the rest of the world, and did you see a couple things that were kind of unique to the state or maybe the U.S.? Um, I'm chuckling because of, uh, Bernadine will, will know this story when I get to it, but um, the similarities, again, are, are all about the human adoption of things. So you take people who don't necessarily understand these technologies and you show them a tablet and you show them how they can do a couple things on the tablet and all of a sudden a barrier falls in their lives. Um, those kind of things are immensely exciting. And the same, the same deliberative process where you get a bunch of people together from completely different sectors, and that's very important. You don't want just... You don't want to be talking to just people you know. You want to be bringing in people from from a nonprofit, from a hospital, from a school, from a business, from a community group, the the community's you know curmudgeon. You want to have him at, him or her at the table as well to get those points of view to get points of view together and to forge a common vision. And that's what took place again here. And it is the essential tool. Until you have that, it's very hard to move forward. Um, and how you get there depends a great deal on the culture you're in and how big your community is in the communities of the size that we were dealing with here. Fortunately, you know, there's pretty good social networks, uh, the old-fashioned kind, in place, and so that facilitates a lot of that exchange. The, the, the difference is one of the things that Blanton does every year is put on a, a broadband conference, and they always have a, an evening where they show a bunch of videos, either produced locally or from overseas or whatever, all having to do with the topic. And, and some of them were very amusing. Some of them were quite touching. And my favorite moment occurred when we were sitting there watching these, and I think we saw something about, I'm going to guess it was Stockholm, which is you know, one of the world leaders in broadband and in making use of it. And they finished, and there was this plaintive voice from the audience that said, why can't we have that? <laughs> uh, well, because we, we, have a different, we have different views in our country about how, what telecom is. We've always said it's a business, it's a private business, and we, you know, we the people don't have that much say over how it gets delivered. And, you know, we're moving, I think, to a much more nuanced view, which says this is, of course, this is a private business, or maybe not, but the point is there's a public good attached to it. And so we the people do have a voice in this, in deploying this, this infrastructure, however we go about it. Mm-hmm. So in the the last five minutes, uh, let's sort of put you guys under a little bit of a pressure here. Two minutes each. What are two things you would recommend to communities to do in order to do, call it base-level research, to feel comfortable with understanding broadband's impact on economic development for their community? And we'll start with uh, with Bernadine. So you're basically advising, you know, typical community, look, these are two things you need to do to try to, you know, answer that question. What really is the connection between broadband and economic development? Two minutes. Thank you, Craig. I think the the first message that I would um bring to community leaders is to is to understand that they themselves uh encourage local leaders to seize their own future and that communities that have hope um, uh, are best positioned to make a positive difference um, in the lives of their citizens and to not just rely on others or the system or providers or the government to do this, but that 
if you come together and set goals and uh, work collaboratively across sectors, you can make a difference, and it's, um, and it's important work that only you can do. You've got to do it yourself, and local leadership really matters. I think that's, that's uh, a main um, exhortation of hope and um, obligation that I would, that I would share. And mm-hmm. um, uh, I guess a second, um, uh, a second message I would bring is this, this uh, concept that we've talked about throughout this hour today, Craig, that broadband is in, indispensable infrastructure. It is not an end in itself. It's a means to community vitality and um, overall well-being. And to see broadband as a way to help achieve all of the goals and aspirations that leaders and citizens have for their communities, you can do it better with broadband. Um, and so to, to to think of it as a um, a way to um, achieve your your community goals, rather than talking about you know broadband um, as as a isolated um, project, but it's it's a tool to achieve community goals. So th- those are those are really two two thoughts that I'd leave your audience with. Coolness, Robert. Two minutes. What you got? Well, first of all, you need to you need to measure what you're doing. So when you say broadband, it's worthwhile to spend some time to get your baseline. Where is it available? Um, what's your penetration rate? How many subscriptions are there? It can be hard stuff to get. Many carriers don't like to share this information. They particularly don't want you to know where their map runs, but it's worth working on. And in particular, work on the issue of gaps, because uh, Minnesota, for instance, has actually a very high level of average broadband penetration compared to the rest of the United States. It's a very broadband literate kind of state, and particularly in its bigger, in its more populous areas, very high rates. But there's big gaps. There's big gaps where there's nothing but dial-up. There's big gaps where there's satellite only, and, and while that's getting better, it's still not there. So you need to actually understand what is going on in your community in terms of, you know, do the roads run everywhere they need to run? The second point, though, is having done that part of it, um, your first stopping place is with the people, the institutions, the businesses, the educational facilities, the hospitals in your community. Um, they all need to be brought into this process and made part of it. And if you spend a year doing nothing but building the coalitions necessary to produce progress, it will be a year very well spent. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And I would uh, remind our audience that the link for the Merck report is in the description page for this particular show, so you can click on that and actually go uh, get the our report. Um I want to thank both of you, uh, Bernadine and Robert, for uh, spending time with us today and explaining uh, your project. I think it's very helpful. I think it's very helpful for people to get their minds around what's, you know, what's needed, what's necessary to do the benchmarking and baseline establishment and all of that. And so thank you very, very much for sharing that with our audience. You're welcome. Pleasure to to have the conversation and to get to to chat with Bernadine again, as well as you, Craig. (laughs) Excellent. And so I invite my audience, uh, our audience, to be here tomorrow. We're going to have an interview with San Leandro, California, and we're going to pose the question, what if a gigabit um, community and region in this part of California, meaning across the bay from San Francisco, could they, with innovative leadership, become the next Silicon Valley here in California, uh, which is going to be a very interesting show, a very interesting uh, discussion. 
I want to thank everybody for uh, listening once again to the show and uh, be back again tomorrow and we'll have another good one for you. Have a great day and we'll talk to you soon.